senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. I'm not normally a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me, Superman! Let's face it, this is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. Hi, and welcome to the Crisis on Infinite Midlives podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. This is episode 60. Ooh. I like the round numbers. Yeah. Makes makes me feel like we're slowly making progress, just plodding week by week (laughs) toward the grave. Oh, God. (laughs) That's that's cheery, hon. I I am actually cheery because with the daylight savings, there is light outside as we're taping, and there's actual fucking sunlight. Yeah, yeah, it's 30 degrees, but... Well, okay, yeah, it is the last week of March, (laughs) and when I went out this morning to obtain breakfast, there were 722-mile-per-hour winds, and I almost lost my ears on the way back, but at least it's sunny. Yes. There's no fucking snow. The snow that we got There's no new snow. You bite your fucking tongue. We're done. (laughs) We're done, or I'm moving, I swear to God. Because, yeah, the snow that we complained about that was coming down last Sunday is the snow that broke the record to make this the snowiest winter in Boston in recorded human history. Yeah. It, what was it, like 110 inches? It's something ridiculous. And with most winters, that shit starts in December. It's like a Gaz- Godzilla's penis worth of, of snow. <laughs> is, is that a new measurement? I think so. I've decided. Oh, okay, so not only was it a shitty winter, but it also made me feel inadequate for some reason. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I don't want to use this measurement anymore. I try to be helpful. You're failing. I, Why are you failing? I suck. No, no, you don't. <laughs> but So yeah, but that snow that fell has gone. The roofs are clear. There's still in every parking lot you go to 10, 12 foot snow banks. It'll be here until June. Yeah. But I think it is safe to say... If you are a listener of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife show, the bitching about the weather, knock wood, is done. Because, <laughs> and thank God, oh Jesus, trying to look forward to the summer, we've obtained our Boston Comic Con passes. Yeah. So, w- w- at the very least, at this point, it's safe to say, you know, with no response on our San Diego Comic Con uh, press credentials, it's been three months. It's safe to say that we have somehow been rejected. The massive operation that takes place in a second bedroom on the outskirts of Boston somehow didn't make the cut. I'm shocked. Yeah, well, it was worth a shot. (laughs) So we'll definitely be doing Boston Comic Con. We are still looking at one or two other regional conventions. And we mentioned this in other shows. If you got a regional convention that you think, not a lot of press of any kind come here, you know, uh, yeah, shoot us an email. Crisis on Infinite Midlives at gmail.com. Let us know. We've got certain travel restrictions. But we've got some budget that's opened up. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, so at the very least, we'll be covering Boston Comic Con, which will be fun. Yeah, and that's August, so we get some time. By then, it'll be fucking hurricane season. <laughs> hurricane fucking Batgirl <laughs> rolling into town. Jesus, I'm not gonna worry about that right now. No. So, so yeah, it's actually reasonably nice out, which should put me in a good mood and should get ready to. Talk about the comics news this week. And boy, was there comics news this week. There was. And we're, I'm, I don't have it in me. I don't have, this has been the shittiest week of comics news and controversy and kerfuffle and people shrieking back and forth when the biggest 
piece of comics publicity of the week where people on the nightly show with Larry Wilmore complaining that comics aren't inclusive wrapped in Larry Wilmore jokes about how we're all living in our parents' fucking basement and not bathing. That's a shit week of comic news. It was an unfortunately divisive week. Yeah. And it's just, it's stuff either. I don't particularly want to talk about cause we've covered similar things before and they just keep coming up and coming up. There's another variant cover that people complained about, and that's fine. I get why the complaints were there, but this is what, like, the th- at least the second or third time in 2015. Yeah, I I don't feel highly compelled to discuss it either, if only because everybody else kind of already has, and it doesn't feel like the discussion is being that much more productive at this point. Yeah, it, and it's... I don't want to say it's been beaten into the ground. People clearly have issues with this kind of thing and it it has been discussed to death yeah this particular comic on this particular book with this particular audience probably not the best idea but you know (laughs) what are you gonna do now and then uh, there's the whole other thing with various former comics bloggers shrieking that i was harassed i'm being harassed now and i just i can't address i don't know these people and you're hiring a harasser yeah i I don't know these people personally all i know them from is from their writing i've never corresponded with them we weren't active on the comics internet when this was all going on so just i it's just it's i've got nothing to add to it i don't know who the bad guy is i don't know if there are any bad guys I think here's all I want to say on this. I think it's good that there are ongoing discussions. I I feel badly that they continue to be divisive. And that's all I have to say about that. I think I want to go forward from this point and and pull like a an atom from from Mythbusters. I reject your reality and substitute my own. And in my own, we're going to talk about something else entirely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it it's too depressing, and there, there's nothing we can add to it. I don't know the players. Uh, all I know is they're writing. All I know is, yeah, I, fuck it. It's just too goddamn depressing. It is. I, I don't I have like a bad feeling about this. We're we're in in this as a fandom because we all appreciate the medium. I, I, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's and, a... and want to see the betterment of the medium, and that's it. <laughs> yep. Exactly. <laughs> and the one thing going for us over any other potential, uh, any other comics press or whatever you might, we have absolutely no interest in breaking into comics. Anything we say can never be held against us as we're suddenly snapped up by Marvel or DC. Because I've said it a million times, I can't write anything longer than a dick joke. I'm gonna go, not going anywhere near your comics. Yeah, I, I have an unfortunate tendency to only be able to, to write narrative in the first person, and my my artwork is highly derivative of uh, stick people. <laughs> it, it's... I prefer the artwork of my cousin Billy, Little Billy. Oh, Little Billy, yeah. Little Billy likes to channel Rob Liefeld occasionally, and uh, it... he's got a death stroke up on our site if you search for Little Billy. and Yeah, search, search Little Billy or Cousin Billy, I forget yeah. what it is, but yeah, <laughs> in the archives. He's eight. <laughs> he's eight. He's always eight. <laughs> He'll only ever be eight. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just leave it at that. There was a lot of comics news. Other places can beat it to death. I'm just too goddamn depressed with all that. I, I believe 
a bright spot to things is this weekend um there was Emerald City Comic Con. Does that sound right? Was that this weekend or next weekend? Something, something was going on. There was something weekend. going on this weekend. Um, because we we had really hoped in terms of current events to try to get uh Brandon Seifert on the show to talk about the fly outbreak. Yeah, which um, dropped this week. But unfortunately we weren't able to to really connect and finalize anything. So well, it's a, we, we <laughs> did, to be fair, we did connect with him. He was extremely gracious yes. in trying to fit us in. The guy but has it's there's a convention he's at this weekend. Yeah, and he's got more <laughs> overall deadlines than fucking Freddy Krueger and the the last four <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street films. He's a so, busy man. Yeah, and so, good on him. <laughs> so yeah, it's a uh, we couldn't quite work it out. Uh, he tried like hell to to fit us in, just couldn't do it. But we were kind of psyched either way for the book coming out because Amanda, you and I are pretty big fans of. Well, I say the original Fly. The, the 1986 ni- Fly. Right. The the one with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, the David yeah. Cronenberg version. Right. And yeah, that's one that I will always have a soft spot for, if only, I've mentioned before on the show, the, the first time I ever I ever went on a date where I got a girl <laughs> to, to, to actually touch me any place was, yeah, we did a double feature. Like what, on the, on the hand, going for popcorn at the same time? Like... I'm, I'm she give you a handy in the theater? Are you, like, are you, where are you going with this? Are you saying I tried the popcorn trick? Because that never works. <laughs> and the police are not interested in your excuses. But I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Let's, <laughs> let, let's keep this clean, you fucking asshole. <laughs> but, I, I mean, we've sort of had this sort of theme over the last several weekends, primarily because we couldn't leave the house because of the weather, but yeah. where we've been revisiting old sci-fi horror properties and and kind of watching them, um, reliving them, comparing them in some cases to reboots. And so we thought this would be a really great opportunity actually to kind of examine, I, I call it sort of tongue in cheek, the life cycle of the fly. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm wicked fucking clever. <laughs> Well, it's about four hours, which might be how long this show is, but because um, it gave it gave us the opportunity to to rewatch uh, the Fly from 1986. Um, it gave us the opportunity to to get drunk and watch the Fly Two, which meant that we had to get drunk and watch it again because we couldn't remember watching it the first time because oh god, the Fly Two. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. Anyway, um, and we did that primarily because it looks like Seifert is jumping off of the events of the Fly Two for the Fly outbreak. So I had to I had to fill in the the holes of my knowledge of Eric Stoltz and his desire to stick things on his face <laughs> in the late eighties. He did a did have a stretch. It was masked. I got an Oscar for the first time, didn't I? It's well, it, it's like he the ugly feeling of being fired off a of Back to the Future. He's just like ruin my face. I don't want to be seen anymore. Cut me, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I also, just because I, I hadn't actually read it, um, I read the short story that kind of kicked the whole thing off, uh, 1957's The Fly by George Langelin. I think I pronounced the last name right. If uh, not, I apologize to the uh, Langelin or Langelin or whatever your name is, estate. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We we invited another fucking lawsuit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you dove deep into this because uh, I think you you may be a bigger fan of the movie than than I am, and I really liked it. I I, I, I own it on Blu-ray. I like Cronenberg's work from that period up to about Nightbreed. <laughs> 
well, that wasn't one of his movies. He just he was sort of slumming and yeah, all right, well, work work loosely. It. <laughs> yeah, it's I really like early Cronenberg. It's tricky to call myself a Cronenberg fan because Crash came and went and just went. Ooh, no, perhaps you and I are done, sir. He's got some new thing that's out now um, with uh, Cusack. Yeah, and oh, Julian shit. Moore. Uh, Map to the Stars. Yeah, I think. Mac, yeah, but. But yeah, it's a. I really like Videodrome. Um, Scanners is that his? Scanners, yeah. I really like, and that's basically a superhero story. Um, is the Brood his? The Brood is his. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, the Dead Zone, the Fly. Dead zone. Yeah, he had me. Yeah, pretty much. Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers, which is disturbing as hell. That's the first Cronenberg I've ever seen. Certainly not a superhero <laughs> story. But no. <laughs> but, I, yeah, it's right up until Crash. You know, and yeah, people just <laughs> the it. I I I saw it right when it came out on home video, and I don't really even remember anything specific about it. But it was the first time I was like, "This is disturbing," in a way that video drum should have been disturbing to me when I was a teenager. <laughs> and uh, no, sir, uh, I don't like it. I so don't now think I, I ever saw Crash. Well, I think it lived on my TiVo for a while, but that TiVo is history as of like last weekend. Yeah, so <laughs> not by act of violence. We've just replaced it with a TiVo Mini to go with everything else. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly grab it on. It might be on Netflix. It probably is. I, I should probably revisit it, but you know, I was a full-grown adult when I saw it, so it's not like, you know, Ugh, I didn't like lima beans as a kid. <laughs> no, I'd seen a lot of movies by the time I saw Crash, and from there on out, like I said, in a movie-by-movie basis, I haven't seen Existence. Mm. Um. You and I both really liked you even more so than me. A history of violence. Oh God, I love you know, that. Another comic book movie. Yep. Um, we haven't seen Eastern Promises. Have you seen that? Um, no. I, I I've seen it like in bits and parts. Like it's been on cable in the background when I've been in a room. Yeah, it's that's one that I've heard is really good. Just haven't gotten around to, to seeing it. Uh, there was Cosmopolis, I think, with yeah, I Robert see that, Pattinson. Because Robert Pattinson. Yeah, it's a. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a shame when your typecast is just a simpering and sipping Simpering sparkly. pair of bushy eyebrows. Yeah, and a sparkly vampire. Ugh. So th- that's one I'll I'll get to. But so yeah, I mean I guess yeah, overall Cronenberg's done more things I like than I don't. Fun fact, certain types of uh, body lice can make you sparkle iridescently like a vampire in Twilight. You go to hell. <laughs> you go straight to Well well I like the idea. Well, I like the idea if if you're getting it, crabs. Because you're covered in this chitinous mass. Chitinous? Whatever. <laughs> you just want to suck the joy out of everything. If you're saying it's like a pubic lice, so being a Twilight vampire is a sexually transmitted disease, I like where you're going with this. I don't know where I'm going with this, but fuck you, I have to think this way. Okay. Well... <laughs> And so do I. And while I'm throwing up, you can hold my hair back. Okay, honey. But, but yeah, I mean, the fly I always liked. Number one, because it's probably the first really gross R-rated horror movie that I saw in the theater. The 80s were really good for having the balls to keep their horror movies R. Yeah. Because there's just something inherently toothless about a pg-13 horror movie that there's there's generally no sense of of real menace because they they can't play up the elements sufficiently and rely on just oh no here comes the killer well i'm not sure that's entirely 
fair because uh Blair Witch Project, and I know that gets a lot of crap, but that was a fairly effective horror movie, particularly the first time it would have made, I saw it, it. It would have been more effective for me had it not made me completely motion sick. It's really hard to get scared if you're worried about tossing your cookies. Yeah, well, you should have gotten drunk before you got in the theater like I did. Trust me. <laughs> there, there was nothing they could have done to me to make it any worse. The theater was spinning before the lights went down. I was fine. <laughs> but you can make a horror movie that you can make an effective PG-13 horror movie. You can't make... David Cronenberg can't make an effective <laughs> okay. PG-13 horror movie. Walking it back. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly that movie would not have been the same had they tried to pull back the sheer disgusting nature. <laughs> but even as a teenager when I saw it, I kind of understood, and it's part of what I liked about it, was for all intents and purposes... The Fly is Spider-Man's origin if you take away anything remotely positive that he could learn from. Yeah. You know, it's it's a science geek who goes to an experiment and something happens to him. And it's far more likely anything that would modify you to the point where you had powers would also modify you in the way Seth Brundle was modified. Oh, absolutely. But without an Uncle Ben lesson, it's just... Suddenly he's on the positive side of, yeah, oh, I can suddenly do gymnastics and crawl up the wall and I don't have to sleep very much. Well, an, an Uncle Ben lesson, and as I think you put it to me when we had been talking about this earlier, um, benevolent effects of, of radiation via Kirby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the difference between Spider, between Peter Parker and Seth Brundle really is, yeah, Jack Kirby radiation effects. <laughs> You know, radiation in comic books in the 50s and 60s was a much more pleasant, you know, imagine your local power company smiling <laughs> electricity mascot, <laughs> as opposed to the nut cutting, you know, oh, I, I teleported myself using radiations. What's this thing on my nut? <laughs> I seem to be pissing snot. It's Jesus. <laughs> and that's a Cronenberg movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, he had the moment of, oh, this is doing great things for me. I'm going to advance myself. Now, Peter Parker decided to become a wrestling star. And Seth Brundle decided to bang skanks from the arm wrestling bar. <laughs> but, you know, it's six of But one only half. after he had won them in a bet. Yeah. He was very honorable about it. <laughs> That's true. She was not a whore. She was <laughs> she was won because of bet the wagering rules. Yes. But And then everything goes wrong for him. And, yeah, trying desperately, instead of trying to design a web shooter, it's, nah, I need to try to find a way to maybe cure myself. Um, so, it, it's, yeah, to me, it's it's amazing. Amazing it, tales? Well, no, it's it's amazing fantasy 15, but it's it's like amazing tumor fantasy 15. <laughs> so, I've always liked it. To me, it was always a comic book. To me, it was always, I'd, I'd also love to talk to David Cronenberg, but... You had to say, dude, did you have Spider-Man in mind for this? Because I don't think he did. Well, I, oh, the, I mean, maybe he did. But the one but... thing we didn't do this weekend, because you particularly dove into it, you know, with finding the story uh, that it was all based on, and but yeah, the two things we didn't do were watch the original Vincent Price movie. I, I scanned through it. It's on YouTube. Okay. See, I didn't because uh, life is short and I got shit to do. But <laughs> and uh, yeah, we didn't watch, uh, and I never have watched the the Cronenberg commentary track. Yeah, uh, on actually the meant to do that. But 
What are you, what are you going to do? Exactly. Can't and do everything. None but. of the interviews that I dug up um, that Cronenberg did on the subject referenced Spider-Man. But he was also, when when he was tapped to direct it, um, and he wasn't, he they approached him, he had another project going, he he almost did a, a version of Total Recall. And that was what had what was conflicting with his ability to do the fly the first time he was approached. Can you imagine his total recall? <laughs> uh, I actually can, and I'd fucking rather see that than either the original fucking... And I like Paul Verhoeven, but yeah, either that or the remake. Yeah. Because yeah, he, yeah, he would have latched right on yeah, the whole what does it mean to be not just me, but a person. Right, yeah, right. Uh, that would have been cool. Um, but yeah, it, things came around and, and eventually he was approached again and he said he would if he was given the green light to rewrite the script that he was given. And the script that he was given was, yeah, it was a reboot of, um, the, the Vincent Price property from back in 1958, which was an adaptation and a pretty straight adaptation of the Langolin short story. Which is what I've heard. Yeah. Um, which was very different than than what Cronenberg did with it in 86. Okay, well, backing it up slightly, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Because <laughs> um, you know, where these sorts of stories fascinate me are around the idea of just the, the symbolism in the literature, not to get all, like, goofy and deep and shit like that, but... <laughs> I That's mean, all right, you're, you're probably doing it with the wrong guy, but I'll keep up as best I can. Well, I mean, one of the things I always like to ask... When I'm, when I'm drunkenly having these conversations about transformative literature and transformative, like no, it's not going to change me as a person. I mean, shit gets changed in the book. You get your werewolves, you get whatever. Like, if you like those kinds of stories, are you, are you a robot person or a werewolf person? Rob, are you a robot person or a werewolf person? It's like I picked the wrong week to put amphetamines. When it comes to the concept of transformative literature metamorphic literature one does not <laughs> metamorphosize into a robot no but there are a thing called transformers even before michael bay oh for fuck's sake <laughs> i i had never considered that therefore i, I am firmly in the werewolf camp okay. I, I was a little bit old for the transformers to have hooked me the way they have some there's that but there's also the idea of like you know, computers with AI lurking within man versus technology and how they could conspire against us were they to get sentience and that's a transformation. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't know how this machine worked. <laughs> I am following you. But... Okay. Um, but, I, you know, I, I am I'm a werewolf person generally because um, I, I like the idea of the the evil that lurks within and and how that comes out it's why you like hulk stories well yeah any werewolf story almost every superhero story is at its guts a werewolf story it's just a different way of how the power that is hidden within you is used right and and the, and the the beast or the monster or the demon or whatever that lurks within all of whatever the the person turns into the 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 creature is always symbolic of something so with your your werewolf you have like your brutality and and baser instincts and you know with something like a fly you're, you're dealing with the idea of a fly is annoying the transformation would be grotesque 
Um, but it's something that, you know, speaks to the idea of bringing disease and decay and rot. So, <laughs> so in comic book terms, like Rob Liefeld, hey, oh, Jesus, <laughs> low hanging fruit, rotting uh, fruit. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, and and it it existed in literature well before uh, Langolin wrote the book or the story rather, and he wrote it for Playboy of all things well, in 1957, back when it wasn't just about the titties. You could actually read the articles well, in Playboy. You know, in the 50s up until the early 70s, men's magazines overall were sort of a, a bastion for genre fiction. I yeah. Mean, that Stephen King's first collection, Night Shift, was almost all shit that while he was still living in a trailer somewhere in central Maine was, you know, getting published in certainly not playboy, <laughs> probably closer to hustler so of the early seventies. Like <laughs> yeah. Dude, just hangers. I don't know. So, I mean, if you go back, you, you can get to, you know, 1915 Kafka wrote the metamorphosis and that was, a story of a, a traveling salesman who wakes up one day and is a bug. Yes, I too uh, took freshman <laughs> freshman in high school English. I know, but like this is with before... that with that said, that's the last time I read that story. So, but it's it's funny because when you talk about you know modern horror or or elements of horror in literature, you know people will po point to like you know Edgar Allan Poe and they'll they'll speak to so, uh, Hawthorne has some some spooky stories. Kafka this ends up getting lumped into sort of like existentialism <laughs> more than it really does get lumped into things that become modern science fiction and horror. Okay. Um, because it's really just a, a contemplation of, all right, I'm a bug. What does this mean? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's basically, I'm a burden to my family. Nobody wants to look at me. I'm awful. I should kill myself. And he does. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but in that particular case, it's still the author is commenting, as you probably learned in freshman English. <laughs> I passed. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> commenting on, you know, what it means to be a person in society working for a living in 1915. You know, I may as well be a bug. I scurry through my day. My day-to-day -day existence is no different than any other day. What am I living for? It's just this bleak outlook on things. I may as well be a bug. Which fits within the scope of horror, I would say. Yeah, but that's that's the that's you the know, thing. With horror, it would be more obsessed with how did this happen to me, right? And Kafka goes out of his way completely to not even deal with that. <laughs> yeah, and I remember it's a the first line is he woke up and he'd become wasn't a cockroach. I fucking remember that. Everybody <laughs> says cockroach. That's right, because you get half on that on that question on the test if you say cockroach. That's right, but it was some <laughs> other kind of bug or beetle. or Was yes. it just a bug? Bug. Okay. It's a bug. <laughs> I would say this would make me go read more Kafka, but it's not going to. No. So. No. Um, and, but, but that's the other piece that's, you know, great about these stories that have these underlying metamorphosis themes taking place it's, you know so this is in kafka's time you know man versus society what does it mean and, and and that that's what the transformation has to do with and so you get to these other stories and now we're we're dealing with okay it's another instinct it's a fly so in the 50s the story that uh langolin writes really doesn't follow um 
a protagonist turning into a bug per se. It's really more the effect that transformation has on the people around him. Yeah, because uh, I did quickly read through the story today when you found it online. And remind me to put a link to it uh, in the... Because uh, it's available for free online. Yes. Um, remind me to put a link to it in the show notes. And but, and so it just gets into that sort of like man versus technology, man versus science, and, and you know, meddling in forces that... Uh, you you aren't prepared to handle that you may not properly respect having and and hubris pride goeth before the fall you know the protagonist not the protagonist but the the scientist who is afflicted with turning into a part fly because of his machine that happens because he's unwilling to reach out and take the support of others yeah it was almost a uh, in going through it uh, a lovecraftian style of writing in the sense that if you if you read a bunch of lovecraft there's very little actual he said, she, yeah. she said. It's some dude removed from the action writing about it afterwards. Yeah. It's not really a, what do you call it, an epistle? Epistle. The the Arrow. kind of story like Dracula is where it's letters back and forth. Yeah. It's not that, but it's it's very much a, oh, God, I've seen things that would drive a man mad, and I'm writing it down later on. Right, because it, it's... Yeah, a, a, presumably wearing a diaper and piddling in a fucking <laughs> corner of an insane asylum, but either way. Well, the first portion of it is told from the point of view of um, the afflicted scientist's brother, Francois. And then the latter portion of it is the confession, the murder confession of his wife, Helene. And it's still all in the first person. Yeah. It's still a, a transcription of a memoir. Yeah. So. And I dig on those, so. I. <laughs> uh, there there were no uh, pictures? Or, there were no pictures. Or word bubbles? No. So uh, I got through it. Good job. I did all right. <laughs> Good job. You go to hell. I'm educated. Um, but then from there, you get into 1986. Uh, the movie still has, you know, the the the. All right. So b- before we get to that, yeah. Um, if Metamorphosis was about being just this worker in the 19 teens of I scuttle, I just. Uh, so what do you think the original story was getting at? Or was it just a, a neat, hey, man, I can sell a sci-fi story to Playboy? The, the 1957. Right. Because um, certainly I can engage with you on what I think certain themes of Cronenberg's movie was. Not, or, or even The Fly 2, <laughs> only having seen that once. Well, I, I think, you know, Playboy... And, and I'm I'm speculating wildly here. <laughs> I will be speculating wildly throughout large portions of the show. But here, I will be afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. I, I prepared for this. I, I got a few you new did. clips. <laughs> um, I would say, given that Playboy, as you described, is a, is a, a a men's magazine wherein they're they're providing, in addition to pretty pictures of naked ladies or semi naked ladies, um. <laughs> for the the titillation of the men folk, they've got articles in there that are, are I don't I I hesitate to use the word scholarly, but of popular interest to dudes at the time. Well, they also ascribe to a certain literary bend. Norman yeah. Mailer wrote for him, and the Playboy interview was always considered, you know, top shelf journalism. Right. So, like I said, I hesitate to flat out say scholarly, but there's a a quality to many of the articles written for them in their earlier incarnation. <laughs> sure. That uh, and I don't uh, I don't subscribe, so I can't say that it's the same now. But I would imagine they may have shifted away. I <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I I'm not trying to set a trap for you to defend them. 
<laughs> right now, I'm literally talking into a device where I can get a human atrocities <laughs> shown to me for no money. So I've not uh, bruised Playboy probably since uh, 87. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I would say having uh, fantastic literature in there of which a theme would be man versus technology and the dangers of science would not be out of left field for the publication. In fact, um, at the, in this time period, Playboy would go out of their way to award um, pieces that it ran uh, with, with awards for like best fiction and have compilations of the best fiction of the year. Sure. And, and this was one of those. So I mean, thematically, you think this is just more of a straight up Frankenstein. There were things man was not meant to know. I would say so. Because, yeah, there really is no transformation. He's just fucking around with this thing and it goes sideways on him. It goes sideways. Well, I mean, it follows follows him going down the rabbit hole. And, and this is the fun thing about this story. There are certain elements to characters in this story where and, and their relationship and interaction with technology that even now in 2015... It, you could totally relate to it. The, Francois opens up with this whole paragraph on on the nature of the telephone as intrusion. Like you, he said, an Englishman can no, no longer call his home his castle because of the telephone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the thing rings, and and he has a a, a physical reaction to the intrusion. And I, I still do. Exactly. That's my point. And, and and we're the last generation who uses their phone sometimes as a fucking phone. Exactly. So he's talking about, you know, at work, I, I somebody can interrupt me at any time for like a confidence. And and it's even worse when I'm home. And it, and then especially even in the middle of the night. <laughs> and then that leads into the phone call from from his sister-in-law. But, you know, I have the same I have an almost Pavlovian reaction now to when my phone has any kind of of indicator on there that I have a voicemail or a text message or an email. I, I, I've gotten to the point I've turned off the sound. Last night, actually, I sat with it flipped over so I couldn't see. I mean, a normal, normal person would turn off the phone. I, I just <laughs> turned it over because I might want to look at my phone, but I didn't want to see any lights or any blinking anything that said I had anything that I had to respond to. Yeah, no, I can understand. People have said, <laughs> and I firmly agree with it, the invention of the phone had to happen first because the technology was simpler. Text messaging really is what should have been invented. Yeah. Because 90% of anything you do on the phone can be resolved in, yeah, 140 characters directly to the person. Here is a message. I will await your reply. Yeah. And normally it can come back very quickly if it has to. You know, when it comes to talking on the actual phone... Yeah, the only person I talk to on the phone anymore is you <laughs> and my parents. <laughs> so the story opens up with, you know, as any good um any good piece of science fiction literature should with the idea of of how something plays on our fears and how that plays out through technology. So the fear of intrusion into your life, the fear of of no longer having privacy, of having your time be your own. In, in, a, in a couple simple sentences up front with the narrator's feelings on the telephone. How technology has impacted our lives just at that base level with technology that actually exists. Which is not a thing I had thought of, but uh, yeah, it, it sets up immediately distrust of popular technology. Yeah. And, and then from there... We all have people in our lives, for, I would say at this point, for the most part, who 
go down a rabbit hole in an area of interest and, and may not come back for hours, sometimes days. <laughs> um, and, and that's what we see happen with Andre in this story as he gets more and more sucked into now, working on this device. Andre's the fly. Andre, okay. yeah, is the guy who becomes the, the part fly. Um, and it's, it's through the eyes of his wife where, you know, he's, he's making some small successes. And then as he has more successes, he disappears for longer and longer periods of time. This man who is otherwise described as as um, a loving family man who who has a, a straight moral compass and and um, is dedicated to to mankind. Wouldn't hurt animals if you if you put a gun to his head. And and we we see him withdrawing more and more into. And they they don't outright call it an obsession with his work, but it is. And it ultimately results because he becomes more and more insular with it. This desire to shut out the world in favor of focusing on this technology that he believes will truly transform <laughs> mankind. <laughs> that guy was a jackass. <laughs> okay, I mean, but but we know people like that in our lives now. Are you shitting me? We are those people. <laughs> For God's sake, we we set up our vacation every year. Or we try to, to make sure we are at a comic book convention. You know, I've said before, every week I spend more on comic books than I ever spent on cigarettes, and I smoke two packs a fucking day. Yeah. We're sitting in a home-built studio that was not inexpensive to build to talk about comic books and genre shit. Yeah. But... This is why I don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> so so strung out uh, from from overwork and lack of sleep and and... In his own mind, the desire to protect others from things that could go wrong with this technology, the Andre decides to send himself through this matter disintegrator reintegrator is what, how they refer to it in the story, um, and and is careless because of all of all of this time that he has spent, um, and doesn't realize that a housefly has gotten into the machine with him. Right. Thus thus creating the the ultimate tragedy although it gets worse i mean <laughs> it always gets worse in these stories because we find out that you know this man who is dedicated to to mankind and wouldn't hurt animals has already tried to send through um the family cat who completely disintegrated yeah that was never a to be seen move. again <laughs> that's that's not cool um later in the story at his wife's insistence uh to she she says why don't you try going through again to see if maybe it'll fix you <laughs> i remember that part yeah. and 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 the family cat atoms that have been floating around in the ether um combine with the fly dna and his human dna so he comes out like even worse <laughs> like fluffy plus mosquito plus tragic time equals tragedy like, like <laughs> <laughs> write that down but um, actually give it to me i'll write it down <laughs> So I think that's again one of the the hallmark of of literature that is successful with science fiction gets into themes that are easily recognizable no matter what time period. Actually you could say that about anything. That's why people harp on about like why Shakespeare is awesome. There are themes They're wrong. And, <laughs> they're wrong, but okay. Themes and characters that are easily recognizable and relatable regardless of what time period you read the story. And I, I would say this story has that going for it. Yes, the the theme of being wrapped up in work and making 
obsessive, terrible mistakes is relatable. Yeah, and excluding family and... Yes, turning into a bug, <laughs> less so. Less so. Um, but there's, you know, it, there's a lot to work with there. Sh- you know, should somebody want to do a reboot, which they did, um, and, and it made a successful movie with two, um, two sequels after that, that uh, Vincent Price was involved in. And in 1986, they, they got the idea, you know, let's, let's do another fly movie. Let's reboot the franchise. Yes. And they went with a whole different. Although it, it's arguable that what themes they had there, there's things people certainly saw in it that were related to the 80s. But yeah, a whole different. Because what they did with the 86 movie was turn it into a transformation as opposed to a, whoops, shit, bang, I'm a fly. Fuck. Now what do I do? Yeah. The, well, in in the earliest incarnation of the draft and then in the later one that, that, that Cronenberg did, the, they really wanted to focus on the idea of a gradual metamorphosis over time. Right. And what that meant. And it became much more cent- central to Seth Brundle, um, the scientist, although certainly the effect his transformation had on the ancillary characters was part of it. It was really more about, you know, what does it mean to go through this? And, and Well, it, the popular wisdom at the time was he was doing an AIDS parable. Because 86 was the worst of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. They hadn't found a way to deal with it even in medium term, with drugs. Right. I mean, if you weren't alive in 1986, and you know, certainly we were teenagers, so you know the concept of getting laid was more likely than the reality of doing it and getting killed by it. But yeah, I mean, the, the reality was, if you got it, you were dead. And you were dead quickly. Yes. And Cronenberg, in interviews, has said that he can see where people can read into that, but that really wasn't his intent. It was really more along the lines of aging and um, and disease in that way, and and how that kind of decay takes an impact on a person than than any specific illness. That's why I'm going out quickly with death by misadventure. That's going to be on my death certificate. <laughs> All right, write down death by misadventure. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, everybody assumed it was an AIDS parable at the time. Right. So. The, but there's there's a lot going on in there that that makes sense in terms of it being perfect f- for the '80s, um, but updated, where the original story was told in the style of sort of a confessional um, short story. You know, in the I voice, um, Helene has a whole actual confession <laughs> right. in there. Um, Veronica is a reporter, so you know her purpose in this in this movie is to tell the story to be the catalyst for getting the story out there. And she does that through, she audio tapes Seth in in their first interaction where he, he shares the invention Um, for what purpose. We're not sure possibly to get in her pants. Uh, (laughs) Of course it was to get in your pants. Jesus Christ. Um, But then later on with his permission, videotaping him as, as the subject of a book he would like her to write to to tell the story of his invention and why it would be so important to mankind. Right. And this is the first one of the first places where I I remember seeing these sorts of like videotaped confessions which would become so commonplace from about 1992 forward as part of reality TV. Oh, yeah, with uh, uh 
the real world. Yeah. It was all over the place. Yeah. yeah. We've got a special closet. You can come in and let's all pretend that you're just talking to yourself like a spastic. <laughs> Which is kind of horrifying in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the beginning of, of using technology in this way to document your lives and, and what does that mean? Um, you know, just beyond family movies, like the, the, the ease of access of videotape. <laughs> One time I videotaped my junk. <laughs> Stop talking about last weekend. Um, but. Help me. Help me to be human. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um interestingly in terms of correlation between the 1957 story and kafka's metamorphosis um this particular as we said this particular version centers around seth and his transformation which is appropriate for the 80s because you know the 70s were the me generation i guess but the 80s really felt as someone who grew up in it like it's supposed to be all about me yeah this, this is all about me and what i'm going through and my stuff and no you've got a point and so it made more sense to follow Seth as opposed to Veronica, as opposed to, to Boris. Um, well, from a, from a storytelling standpoint, also, when, when the dude who the shit is happening to is sort of off center, yeah, it's not necessarily as strong a story. Now, it's a with, different story. Well, yeah, and it's, <laughs> It's a hard thing to to make the dude it's happening to a hero when he can't even talk. Yeah. Yeah, which which in the original story and my understanding is the original movie, yeah, suddenly this has happened and he's just writing down stuff he wants to so yeah, to make it a transformation and to focus on Seth, I think just makes it a stronger story cuz Yeah. Yeah, with it, he's the one it's happening to. I agree. Whereas with everybody else, it's, you know, oh, what a dingus. It's having an effect on my life. Yeah. No, I, I, don't, I don't disagree. And it's it's not as though the, the 50s uh, were bereft of stories where something went horribly wrong to the protagonist and we watched as their world changed from their point of view. Amazing shrinking man. Um, <laughs> yep. Over the course of a movie. Um but in this particular case, the level of self-reflection that Brundle undergoes, and granted some of it is with a, a degree of, of mania and de demented thinking because <laughs> of his transformation into a bug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it correlates with the Kafka story, um, accepting his changes in his eating habits from, from eating normal food to now having to eat like a fly. Um, that, that showed up in the Kafka story. Um, taking pleasure in his new abilities such as being able to scale walls, the super strength, the <laughs> Yeah, and and that's where I always get the Spider-Man superhero origin tie-in just yeah. if it went wrong on you. And and also the understanding of his changing relationship to others and and sort of acceptance of of how they view him. It, I I didn't get a sense in um in Seth Brundle's point of view that he was someone necessarily to be pitied in his opinion um just that he saw himself differently in relation to others now because he knew he was becoming insectoid i think it was more he was losing his shit as it went along you yes know, the, well, the brundle museum of natural history <laughs> <laughs> you 
Yeah. The, the minute your junk is in your medicine cabinet, yeah, you're either going to go with self-pity or, okay, fuck it, I'm just going to plaster on as much of a smile as I can and think I can still get some control over this. Let me see if I can merge somebody else into me. That seems like a good idea. The desperation, I think, yeah, you know, was was there instead of self-pity because because that was the other thing I was going to say. There's potentially not just Spider-Man, but the thing parallels. Yeah. I've become this horrible thing. Other, I, yeah. I can't go out, and it's I can't be around people. Nobody can be near me. Yeah. yeah the difference is Ben didn't keep getting fucking worse. <laughs> um, But also in line with appropriate metaphors for the 80s, you know, he goes through... And again, his his moment of hubris, or it's not even hubris, it's carelessness, um, thinking that he can go through while under the influence of alcohol and not like thinking that he should check to make sure that his equipment is clean before he goes through. <laughs> he, he acts out of jealousy because he thinks that Ronnie's going back to bank uh, status. <laughs> That's right. Kids, never drunk teleport. Exactly. It's some, every new piece of technology, you have to learn not to use it drunk. Exactly. You get one drunk text out. You're fucked. You're fucked. So don't drunk teleport. <laughs> You'll wake up half fly in your ex's living room and she'll be shrieking at you. Just don't do it. Don't do it, kids. Not even once. So he goes through, he absorbs the fly into his DNA. Granted, he doesn't realize at the time, but he he thinks that his newfound abilities are because having gone through the pod has made him somehow purer and better um, as, a, as a human being with these better abilities. Um, and it, and it looks very similar to the way that somebody might behave under the influence of drugs like cocaine at the time in terms of, no, this is making me better, sharper. Everybody should do this. Why aren't you doing this? I don't have a problem. <laughs> Which I can see. I mean, my first instinct was, yeah, we're in the, the part of Spider-Man where he's learning how to web sling. Yeah, the part of, uh, I never want to say Superman. In all the movies, there's rarely any joy with the powers because he's just born with them and he can't save his people. Yeah. And, you know, there's just a weight hanging over him. But, uh, yeah, the the Iron Man flight scene the first time. Yeah. And so, but uh, again, we've established I have an unhealthy obsession with comic books. So that's going to be the first thing that I see. But, yeah, the the blow analogy, <laughs> you know, for the second time this show. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. I can certainly see it. Yeah, because there's there's with that uh, a sleeplessness. There's there's mania, you know, the the dysregulated thinking before it becomes like flat out dementia. (laughs) We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, (laughs) poor physical appearance. He doesn't realize he's looking all bruised and shit. But shit, I like my but warn me before I leave the house for work tomorrow because I'm on my second beer. Anything could go wrong at this point. (laughs) Um, so I think here we see, you know, this, this story, this kernel of an idea that Langolin was paid for, uh, to, to create for Playboy 30 years previous, almost 30 years previous, Yeah. um, still has enough resonance that people can take it and make minor tweaks and tell roughly the same story at its core, but with these whole new layers of social relevance, to to the day and and i don't want to say improve on the story but tell a story that has a level of greater meaning now for um an increased audience well yeah just increasing modern relevance and that's 
part of the strength, you know, any transformation story, which includes most superhero stories, that kind of updating and modernization, you know, has been happening constantly. We're seeing it with Superman right now with, oh, he's got new powers and we're going to change his costume and his outlook. You know, Batman, yep. as the years have gone by, has changed. Oh, he doesn't have any powers, but <laughs> it's in its own way, it's similar. This thing happened to me, so I'm going to become this. Right. So, yeah, even though it's a horror movie, that's why I love the Cronenberg fly so much. It's very much, to me, a superhero story. A no-hope superhero story <laughs> that takes place over six weeks, and he becomes the villain at the end of it. You know, like the old Harvey Dent quote from yep. Dark Knight, you'll have long enough to become the villain. Yeah. But that's that's why I was excited about Seifert's fly comic book. It's like, this should have been a comic book for years. Yeah, and and, and when we get to talking about that, there's there's some great stuff about it because they're able to... to you know, much like Buffy season eight, do a lot without having to worry about the constraints of movie budget. Right. Now, the problem is it doesn't take place after the fly. It takes place after the fly two. Yeah. <laughs> Although. So apparently we're going to talk about the fly two. Which was. Suck the joy out of everything. <laughs> you know, the fly did great at the box office. I, I think it, it grows something like. 50 million or something like that. I think it was his biggest, Cronenberg's biggest hit at the time. Um, and it, it got an Academy Award for makeup and special effects from Chris Wallace, who Chris Wallace Inc. did the, the special effects for that movie. He's yep. also known for Gremlin, Gremlins. Um, yep. They, uh, now I don't, I don't think that anybody was necessarily screaming for a sequel to this. <laughs> Maybe somebody was. Mel Brooks, um, Brooks Films, was uh, was an executive producer pr producer on yep. these. Um, Cronenberg had some thoughts about a sequel, but being Cronenberg, he didn't want to do a retread of what he just did. And Brooks was more of a mind that now you do a sequel, people want to see the same shit that got him into the seats to begin with. Don't give me your weird shit. <laughs> Fairly pragmatic view, if not nearly as interesting as something could be. So it was handed off uh, to Wallace, and he wanted to do a more straight-ahead horror movie that that didn't necessarily go down the same sort of think piece. <laughs> yeah, now, let me interject here. Again, I was a huge fan of Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah. I never saw or sought out The Fly 2 ever. Me either. <laughs> because, because, yeah, Chris Wallace, um, you may not be familiar with him as a director. That's because he never directed anything before this. Afterwards, I looked on IMDb. He directed one episode of Tales from the Crypt and some other direct-to-video yeah. thing with uh, Michael Ironside. Yep. So yep. as a director, he's a special effects guru. Yep. Um, and that shows in this movie. <laughs> yeah, but it was also, yeah, Cronenberg's not back. Goldblum's not back. Gina Davis isn't back. Nobody from the original is coming back to it. Except for the guy that plays Stathis. Right. Who, as far as I'm concerned, his story's done the minute he loses his foot. Yeah. Yeah, he served his purpose. So, yeah, when I heard about this sequel, I had no interest in it. I had forgotten it had ever shown up in movie theaters. It did. Until we talked about this. Now, I had just started college, so even if it was in theaters, I never had any money to go to the movies anyway. Right. 
But it started when we were early in college. So this would have been like the first semester of our freshman year. Yeah. So this is just not a movie. It's one of those. It's the same way I own Alien and Aliens on Blu-ray and not Alien 3 and Resurrection. (laughs) It's no, these are the ones I'm fine with this. Right. But at least with those, I had seen the other two. With this one, I just had always assumed this is it's a money grab. This is not a Eric Stoltz. What the fuck does he have to do with anything? Well, interestingly, uh, the movie was written with the part Martin Brundle uh, with Stoltz in mind. It was written for him and he turned it down initially until it went through a rewrite and then he was okay with it. They actually had Vincent D'Onofrio come in and read for the part of Mar- Martin Brundle. Um, he didn't end up getting it, but that's just sort of funny considering he went on to his his big break was Men in Black where he turns into a giant bug. Well, <laughs> I don't think that was his big break, but it's funny. <laughs> bigger break, one of the bigger breaks for him. His bigger, more modern. His big break, as was, far uh, as I know, was Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket, yeah. Private Pile. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it, so they've got Eric Stoltz who, who just had like, box off his success and critical acclaim and mask because he was willing to have shit stuck to his face. (laughs) That was his qualification. He'll just sit there. Yeah, whatever you want to layer on him. He put up with Cher. Cher. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody should have to do that. He's already been through a horror movie. You're fine. Just come in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Daphne Zuniga shows up in this movie because Brooks produced it and he liked her from Spaceballs. So he recommended her. She is really not good in this movie at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, she doesn't even bring any of the dramatic gravitas that she brought to Princess whatever her face was. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I like Spaceballs. I like the sure thing that she was in. Yeah, but, oh, yeah, all right. So she's essentially reprising, uh, I, she's the sure thing for Martin. I guess, yeah. The, the only girl <laughs> around. Yeah. Who'll talk to him. Yeah. Puts up with his shit. Um. So having watched this twice and because I'm I'm willing to go through and try to find whatever connections, no matter how tenuous, <laughs> to the... You're, to a, you're a better person than I Commit am. to the conceit of, of transformative storytelling, um, tale of, of the fears and the woes of, of people at the time. Now we're into the latter part of the 80s. Yeah. And I, I will uh, let me go on record quickly before we go in. It was better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's it almost had to be. <laughs> there was almost no way around it. My benchmark for the shittiest sci fi movie out of the 80s, early 90s is Eve of Destruction. Oh, Jesus. I wouldn't even fucking do that. <laughs> the hell's the matter? Which is like, like a cyborg story gone completely wrong. I think it had Gregory Hines. Yeah, it's a, the Terminator starring some chick. Uh, starring a tap dancer, for yeah. Christ's sake. <laughs> the hell's the matter with you? So it wasn't as bad as that. <laughs> That's my benchmark. I, I've not seen it. I can't address it, but. I'll get you drunk some night and make you watch it. No, 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 no. <laughs> like, why should I have to go through that alone? That's not going to happen to me. <laughs> I, you will not do Eve of Destruction to me. I don't want it in my body. Do you understand me? I don't want it in my body. You're not going to do it to me. So where where I see this going is in terms of, of fears, the, the pursuit of, of technology, not for the love of science, but for corporate greed and monetization. Um, I mean, not that that wasn't going on at any other point in history, but it's, it's in your face here. Uh, yeah, this, the, this script, it was, a, uh, the story was by Mick Garris. It went through a couple rewrites. Frank Darabont, uh, I think had the final rewrite on it and he wanted to really in your face, get the idea of corporate greed in there so, as. So Mick Garris and Frank Darabont. Yeah. 
Shoot him. Shoot him both. And and Darabont and particularly wanted to, yeah, Anton Bartok is is the embodiment of all that is evil with fat cats in the 80s that want to make money and and he sounds like a heel wrestler he does he does <laughs> the rock versus anton Bartok. <laughs> yeah it's like wait wait didn't rocky punch that dude out like, um but there's also in there this sort of um you know sense of what about the children's you know it, Martin is is being raised by this corporation. He doesn't he wants so desperately to have a father figure. He imprints on Anton, who ultimately exploits and betrays him. Um so children being viewed as extensions of parents or even even surrogate parents rather than being brought into the world because someone loves them. Um you start hearing these stories about people who have kids because they think they're supposed to have kids, not because they really should be having kids. Yeah, we don't know anybody like that. Um, And how these kids, you know, end up having a lack of nurture. Your latchkey kids, nobody's nobody's home to take care of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They kind of have to raise themselves, and they're surrounded by adults who don't really give a shit about them. You see a lot of that in the early part of this movie. Um, Heavy-handed, but it's there. It definitely is. It's uh, watching the first twenty minutes of this. I'm like, really, a, a corporate, a, a child can just be disappeared into a corporation and seemingly have no rights under American law. <laughs> it, it was the same thing at the end of it when Bartok gets his last, his his just desserts. Yeah, it's like this was a billionaire CEO of a multinational corporation, and apparently, it's just okay to make him, you know, the pit monster that people cackle at and. <laughs> And flick cigarette butts at the dancing bear. Yeah, um, that guy would have the best medical care money could buy. Well, and we'll get to that. I think a little. Okay, we'll get to. I that. don't want to get ahead, but, but um, it's it was kind of a plot hole of this child has to have a birth certificate somewhere. But does he? I mean, that's that's the other that's the the evils of the corporation that they're laying on thickly. You know. Yeah. All right. As. It was a little thick. I, I get where you're laying down. Um, and and also the rise in video surveillance. So they, if we look at the last movie where they begin to use the video to document, you know, me and what's important about me. In this movie, it's it's video surveillance as as a rising evil, and it's not even that big. I don't remember this being that giant in late '80s, early '90s, but yeah, it's the. F- it was probably the early 90s where you started hearing about it out of like London where yeah. there were surveillance cameras on every corner. So, but this, you know, here Martin doesn't have a moment to himself. Everything he does is is videotaped and archived and and recorded and there's always somebody watching the videotape and and making sure that he's not, you know, getting up to to things he oughtn't. And maybe jerking off a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and this translates into he's finally given a house where he thinks he can do whatever he wants and has sexy times with a lady and it's videotaped <laughs> and thrown back in their faces. Um, so just, yeah, the, the increasing presence of something intruding into your life, which comes back to that 1950s story with, with technology as it intrudes into your life. I can see that. While... While the the movie itself was in no way as solid as 
the predecessor in 1986, or even in some ways as the original short story, it certainly does have enough themes where it can carry those ideas forward. Yeah, and in certain ways, this was, <laughs> in certain small ways, and it was me probably reaching to try to find ways to to like this better, but in certain ways, I think it was more of a superhero movie than the original, because when the transgenesis starts for Martin, it's the same kind of body horror as yes. in uh, the... The 1986 fly. Exactly, yeah. This is a terrible thing that's happening to me. I have to stop it. There's one potential cure, but I can't possibly face it. But unlike the the 86 movie, he goes through a complete transformation and kind of embraces his power to take it back to the fucking corporation. The first part of Act 3 of this is not this is a terrible thing that's happening to me. It's gone wrong. It's I'm using my power to fuck up the bad guys. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they go out of their way to show how the fact that all of the adults in his life, this is a kid who is literally a kid because of the mutated genes in his system. He's rapidly accelerating in his aging and he he's five years old by the time he finally looks like adult Eric Stoltz in this movie. Yep. So they don't really touch upon, they touch upon the fact that he's a genius, but they don't touch upon really his emotional maturity. And it it would make sense as a five-year-old, if you suddenly have the power to fuck up the bullies who have made your life hell, you're going to use it. You might feel regretful afterwards, but emotionally... It's it's well within your rights. Yeah, I'm going to put my foot down and say no. <laughs> and that's a classic superhero story. At, at, at 44, I hate to call them adolescent power fantasies, but <laughs> but yeah, he he embraces what he becomes for as long as he needs to. Then he goes for his cure. There's a Billy Batson parallel to be drawn there. I mean, potentially, if every time he said Shazam, he, he turned into a giant bug. Yeah, just, <laughs> just shit came off him. I mean, yes, it's true. This man has no dick. But... It's in the Brundle Museum of Natural Natural History. Exactly, but so uh, while I I I am never going to say The Fly Two is a good movie, you know, when we approach this, you know, sort of in the scope of you know comic books and what yeah i think there's a big chunk of the fly too that's even more of a comic book movie than the original fly yeah and and with that i think we can we can get to um the the movie ends with martin choosing to take back his humanity by relieving the outward appearance of humanity of anton bartok yeah, he basically takes his goop, his, <laughs> whatever's fucking up his Kool-Aid, and yeah, drops it on on Bartok. And turns, yes. he becomes not even the fly. He just sort of becomes this mutate. The blob. <laughs> yeah, just about. <laughs> it's... And and he and and that's where they leave it, and that's where, where Seifert picks up with with his story. <laughs> yeah, so all right, so we'll go to the fly outbreak one. Yes. Um, I will give the caveat, you know, clearly we did a whole ton of 
fly research this weekend. Yes. It, it, if you're just a fan of the original Cronenberg and have never seen The Fly 2, Seifert does a decent job of making it so you don't absolutely have to know what happened in The Fly 2. It, it is the characters from there. But he sort of gets through everybody's fate within about the first two-thirds of the book yeah. while also laying down, here also is the new normal for Martin and for Beth and for the Bartok Corporation. Yes. So he can move on to the next thing. So just because we did all this shit to try and fully appreciate what's going on and fly out break one, don't feel you have to. Right. Um. So so Seifert is on record. Uh, there's an interview he did with Blaster.com in February 2015 that he wanted to use the arc of the storybook to, to explore f- our fears about infectious disease, genetic, genetically modified organisms, um, the, the, the way that sex has changed in our society, um, the idea of, of global pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good time for that. And, and yeah, so, so it, and that's part of why I wanted to kind of set up the whole thing. There is definitely a history for this. And, and I think it's great that they've decided to take on a writer who, who wants to honor that history with this whole franchise. Yeah. From way back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, Seifert's highly interested in the idea of biological horror. Um, you and I first came across him as he was the writer for the Witch Doctor series. Yeah. Um, was that IDW? Uh, I be- yes, it was IDW. Okay. Um, Actually, no shit. It was it? Been was image. it image? Yeah, it's a look. Go to our go to our main website, crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. Yeah, uh, there's a thing that says all subjects, and we've done two or three reviews on Witch Doctor. It was image because it was it was um one of the one of the covers had like the skybound under it also. Okay. So. Yep, you're right. So um, it was image. Yeah. So the that was a great series, and that was definitely you know the whole where where medicine and Lovecraftian horror kind of inset intersected yeah i always call i always called it if uh half house half ghostbusters yeah because yeah dr dr vincent morrow was very much a mouthy i'm a genius (laughs) constantly had the right line for everything but yeah against these supernatural transformations of people possessed and just terrible things happening to them and a really big fucking sword (laughs) always a good thing when going after demons yes um so I, i you know I think there's so much stuff out there that he can totally touch on with, you know, Ebola. <laughs> yeah. We had Ebola on American soil in the last year. That was the main <laughs> thing I was thinking of when I said, yeah, all right, it's a good time to do it. You know, and even before that, uh, you know, the various flus that were in popular consciousness and in the news and in our people. Oh, bird flu and <laughs> Bird flu, SARS swine flu. And, and, yeah, there's, there, there's one every couple of years. I, come, I came back from Italy and it's like the world is in lockdown because swine flu. <laughs> yeah, it was fun being at Logan Airport to to pick you up with yeah swine flu on every television in Logan Airport. I'm like, oh Jesus. Yeah, you know, vaccination fears. We we live in a day and age where people are coming down with measles for no good reason. <laughs> and yeah, uh, for the record, fuck those people. Yeah. So this is it's more than a reasonable avenue of of popular fear to address through the idea of a horror transformation story. Yeah. Um and. So to to get into this, and hey, folks, if you haven't read the book yet, spoilers. Yeah, we're going to spoil <laughs> from here on out. 
Um, so Martin wants to use technology for the betterment of man. This is a, a theme for for the Brundle family, for the Delambre family in the original story. Um, betterment of man. Make the world a better place. And in this particular case, he wants to cure Anton Bartok of, of the curse that he has passed on to him from the end of the previous movie. Yep. Uh, because he's got such a strong moral compass and it, it 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 hurts him to have to have done that to another human being no matter how much of a douchebag. Yes. Um and then he gets into and here's where he starts to pull back the layers of society and examine those horrors. We get into the fact right on on the first page Martin has chosen to have a vasectomy. Smart man. Smart motherfucker. And in a moment of humor, because there's a nice balance in the book between the dark elements and any opportunity that Seifert has to inject humor, much as he did in Witch Doctor. Um, he's got this assistant who's talking to him um, as the voice of his vasectomy in the voice of Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. <laughs> a bug. Yeah. It's The book is not as humor-laden as Witch Doctor is, but the levity is there when it's needed. Yeah. Um, but then they get into... It, uh, Martin's marriage to Beth and the houseboat is still there because um, houseboats were a thing in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I think it's Quincy's houseboat. Actually. It might be. It might be. Um, and they still live on the houseboat, but now they're in this marriage where Beth wants desperately to be able to connect with him and he puts up these barriers. He's worried about infecting her with um, something. He he He's of the belief that despite the fact that he's been asymptomatic since the end of the, the last movie, somehow coming into contact with his bodily fluids would somehow create a transgenic mutation infection. And he doesn't want to risk that. Yeah, It seems and, like a bit of a stretch, but I'm hoping that's something that Seifert teases out as yeah, the story I, goes on. I'd like to have that explained. That was one problem that I, I think we both had when we first read through it because the indications in the movies that this was a contagious condition would be brought up and then sort of slapped down. Yeah. In, in, uh, the 1986 movie, Goldblum flat out says, I might be contagious. And then immediately hugs Ronnie. <laughs> so it's like, well, um, <laughs> and, then, and then a few scenes later says, well, no, it turns out that there's no way you can catch this. I'm not contagious. Yeah. Um, was it brought up in the fly too? I don't believe it was. So now, granted, we were drunk both times we watched it. Well, we kind of had to be for Christ's sake. <laughs> but, but there was there was no indication, um, really, that it that there was a fear of infection. Now I can. Although when they did go to collect Martin from the motel they were hiding out at, everybody was in full biohazard gear. Now, to be fair, that might have just been due diligence precautions. Yeah, uh, if I come across a dude in a sort of pussy separating cocoon. <laughs> I'm not going to get naked before I touch him. No, I'm putting on hip waders. <laughs> this assumes I can't just blast him with a fucking flamethrower. It's true. It's true. There's not enough raid. But... <laughs> <laughs> Writing that one down. But um, so, so yeah, I would, I would like a little more as this goes along to, to address why suddenly there's a really concrete belief on Martin's part that this is, Potentially contagious. Communicable, yeah. You know, uh, and clearly, the the title of the, the book is Outbreak. Right. Clearly, there has to be that concern. Yes. And I'd like to know where that came from. But walking it back slightly. So, okay, for whatever reason, he's afraid he's got something communicable. Fine. Um, so this has affected their sex life. 
<laughs> um, and Jesus, sometimes I get gassy. <laughs> so I can see why. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, they've they've been exploring at the very least um, some sort of BDSM lifestyle um, for whatever purposes, which. Again, he wanted to, he said in the interview, explore the changing nature of, of sex and society. Interestingly, and this may be a stretch, but I'm going to go there because I bet, I will bet you in freshman English when you covered Kafka's Metamorphosis, you didn't touch on this. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> I don't know. I, I touched a lot when I was a freshman on me because I was a freshman. In Kafka's Good. Metamorphosis, there there's a reference to, uh, what's the name of the author? Wait, let me have it. Ah, here we go. Leopold von Sacker Massock, the father of sadomasochism. I got a bad feeling about this. Go ahead. Um, who who's most well known for the story Venus and Furs, which outlines the narrator's um relationship with a woman who he wants to have dominate him, and then who ultimately becomes disgusted with him because uh he he needs to be dominated and leaves him for a man by whom she wishes to be dominated. And it's um, Leopold's sort of treatise on how women can't be equal in society until we, until we start treating them differently, apparently. But on the, on the wall of, of um, Gregor Samsa's room is a picture of a woman in furs. And it's popularly thought that that is a reference to Venus in furs. And furthermore, that the, the letters of, of Samsa's name with the S A S A M, it gets into like the a reference to Sacker Massac, basically. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> Please continue. So you know, I just thought it was an interesting. It may ha it may it may have absolutely no connection, but I just thought that as far back as 1915 <laughs> in these sorts of stories you know something i, I am gonna give one last shot to see if if cypher <laughs> wants to be on the show i would love to hear you say this to him and have him laugh at me which he would no, i would love to hear if there's any basis to it because that that's a long way to go but it hooks up it does it makes sense I spent a very long time trying. I went down a rabbit hole this weekend. And, <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> Dropping my notes on the floor like a douche. <laughs> so excited. Um, so anyway, <laughs> but it gets into also if even, even without that level of, of, of me going and stretching and trying to find some connection like that. Um, they're in a society where they're having difficulty making a connection. And what does this say about our, our, our level of willingness to go through um, this sort of, of depri uh, deprivation, pain uh, versus pleasure to get any kind of satisfaction out of a relationship? I mean, it's not my kink. I don't understand it. But <laughs> yeah, it's but for some people, piece of work. ask anybody. For some people, that's their thing, and that's fine. But it's interesting that it's it started to to play out in in their relationship this way, and I'm curious to see how that gets explored further. Yeah, because um, it, it did sort of come out of nowhere from from the previous two movies, and that's not the kind of thing you you do by accident. So, yeah, right. I'd, I'd like to see where that comes from. And and you're the one who pointed out to me that it seems that they're being videotaped while this is happening. Yeah, and that, that plays back into the movie because certainly that was not Martin's thing. Martin would not want to be videotaped. Yeah, no. 
So is Beth doing the videotape? Have, has he come around to the idea of videotape? Or is some outside entity videotaping? Well, he was in the submissive position there. Once you're in a ball gag, <laughs> tied up, you know, if, <laughs> if you have to submit and you hate being videotaped, eh. Yeah, so you know, I, I don't know. But yeah, we're, we're talking about a culture uh, of which... Uh, I'm just too damn vanilla. I can't tell you one way or the other. I'm speculating. But at the very least, in terms of, of the marriage and Martin's choice to have the vasectomy and, and they've got no kids, it speaks to, in society, changing norms. Um, you know, there are more and more couples who are in relationships. They may be bar- married and childless. They may be living together um, and not married. Just different differences from the the traditional family structure that you saw in the 50s and into the 80s right um where 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 there's an expect expectation of a father a mother and you know the 2.2 kids or whatever they did have a dog though did they they did and it was a callback to the movie because it's another golden retriever okay so thought that was interesting sort of like a nod toward that also <laughs> yeah no i can see that um it, Seifert did a nice job sort of balancing um, references to the previous movie without being overtly heavy handed. You know, Beth makes a joke about beta testing <laughs> in yeah. that in their moment <laughs> yeah. of, of ball gag fun. Um, well, he, he really does get through the aftermath of the movie to get to the story he wants to tell relatively quickly. Because, yeah, we we get Bartok is still there. He's trying to cure it. It goes wrong. So there's another basically fly attack. But by the time it's all said and done, by the, by the time we're three or four pages left in the story, Bartok is dead. We know where everybody's standing and we're moving into where he wants to go with this. There's some kind of quarantine yeah. going on because, yeah, the expectation that this transgenic disease is occurring. Right. So. Yeah. And. There were other things in there that were nice little nods. The deterioration of language in Anton um, over the course of this metamorphosis for him. And somehow he gets a hold of a, a iPhone or something that has assistive tech that allows him to to communicate with Martin. Yeah. Um, but that goes back to even just the, the 1986 Fly movie because as Brundle deteriorates, his voice becomes unrecognizable by his computer which leads him to have to input things manually. Yeah, and by the end of the movie, he can't Talk speak at all. At all. Yeah. Uh, neither could Martin through his I'm a superhero fly <laughs> rampage. Right, right. The confrontation that Anton has with Martin and the other staff at Bartok Industries mirrors the one in The Fly 2 because it's the same sort of giant warehouse-looking thing. It looked very similar in terms right. of you know the, the, the creature coming through the door and the fight happening. So that that was a nice callback, I thought, whether it was intentional or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird that the the art in this by a dude named or, or a, an a, entity, a being, an entity <laughs> named a Menton Cubed. Uh, I really don't know what that means. Um, the art was interesting and in that there's a lot of photorealism. Yes. Clearly, IDW got likeness rights for. Eric Stoltz, Daphne Zuniga, um, the dude who played Anton. Because, Anton. yeah, they had, there's a picture of him hanging up in, in the critter pit. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the colors are, are interesting. The, the palette is really kind of greenish that sort of matches the font. Yep. But. The font of the Fly movie poster. Yes. Yeah. But it's also, the art caused me the most problems because when we got to the end, I don't know where Martin is. Yeah. It's, I don't know who's got him. I don't know who's calling this quarantine. I'm assuming it's the government. That but, seems to be the implication. But, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know who's with him because they're saying, you know, oh, but we're not going to keep any of you any longer than we have to, but all we see is Martin, so I don't know who else is in this quarantine. Well, it's, there are moments earlier where it appears that other staff members from Bartok Industry have been contaminated with fluids from the Bartok fly. Yeah, but it's we don't we don't see. But we don't know. So so right now we know it's Martin and other right are being held by somebody somewhere. And and it's a, a visual storytelling issue that I can't tell. Yeah, so I have I, I'm definitely interested in, in reading the next issue in hopes that some of that will be resolved. And I'm curious because I have some theories around, you know, how did how did we get to this point? <laughs> and I want to see if any of them play out to fruition. Well, what do you think is going on? Well, I'm wondering, in, in earlier incarnations of the Fly script, yeah. before Cronenberg got his hands on, on it, um, and also to a certain level in the original story from 57, the idea that some of the experiments went wrong when they tried to send living matter through in that they disappeared into the ether <laughs> and okay. just sort of held, were held there in stasis. And nobody realized that until later on in subsequent experiments where that DNA came back and, and then re- recombined with um, other organic matter around it. There is, um, and actually it does show up in Cronenberg, but it's in a deleted scene um, that does show up on the DVD, but not in the theatrical cut. Yeah, but it shows up, but there, there's not the idea of this animal that's just out there. Because, yeah, the, the problem with what you're saying, and it could certainly be introduced in this series, because it's pretty clear just in the first couple of pages of this comic that Martin got the teleportation working. There's telepods all over the place. Right, and that's where I'm going with this though. So, you've got you've got all of these opportunities where you've you've sent um Bartok through. We don't know with what. True. Um we also know in the opening of this book that the pods, it, Martin is needed everywhere because the pods aren't functioning right. Yes. So if something has gone wrong and instead of the the energy being contained in one and then being sent to the other, if it's somehow being projected out. <laughs> it's... And if... The, and one, the one issue I have with that, and it could very easily be overcome in the comic, is in both the fly and the fly too. These things are wired connected. They are wire connected, but they were also destroyed in the first one. And then in the second one, I don't know that it was destroyed per se, but it's it's only working because Martin got it working. True. So it could just sort of be a ritualistic laying on of hands. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so that's that's one theory. It's 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 a shaky theory. <laughs> no worse than anything else. Look, it's a sci-fi story. It, it, it could be as e- it could that could be introduced as easily as yeah, shit. It's been twenty five years. Uh, we got wireless now and move <laughs> on. Um, a secondary mutation could have happened in Anton, and I think this is the one that's more implied after um, Martin sends him through in the beginning of this issue because he thinks that he's done work to um, turn the genes down that are causing the issues from from the fly DNA, when in reality, based on the mutation that happens and he turns into one of the flies, um, he seemingly has upregulated that DNA. And as part of that, maybe there is another mutation that has previously not been an issue where now he's shedding some sort of DNA-changing virus. It's possible. It's implied also by Menton Cube's artwork, which is heavy on the ink splatter. And and that's where you see the first of various staff members in Bartok industry getting shed on with this like goo that isn't dissolving them, but is definitely sticking to them. Yeah, and the more I think about it, it's he's not just teleporting anymore. And since he's fucking around with the genetics. Uh, that could very easily be where the okay and now you're because we're messing with the with the actual genetic code that's where you get yeah viruses and virulence and and now we're back into the realm of there are things that man was not meant to tamper with i was gonna say temper with tamper with (laughs) historically it's there are things man was not meant to know right and you can't trust him with computers. <laughs> computers are dumb. They only know what you tell them. <laughs> By God, I'm going to use every one of the sound effects I got. That's okay, honey. So, so there, there's a lot there that that's of interest and and really makes me want to see you know how the how this plays out in the next issue. There's some other thoughts I have in here too. We don't know who the shadowy organization is that has taken them into quarantine. My guess is, like yours, it's some sort of the governmental. Is, yeah. Agency, which would also then tie back into who put the video camera in Beth and Martin's bedroom. <laughs> yeah, and the idea of corporations being used as military yeah. arms. And that gets into popular fears of, you know, big government interfering in our daily lives. No oh God, they're going to disappear us on our own soil. Um, oh, God, if I see a FEMA camp, I swear to God. <laughs> so you've got that going on. Um I, I S and M and FEMA camps. Welcome to comics. <laughs> I, I think you know overall it's it's a, a really you know great book. I and it made me think. I, I spent this whole friggin' weekend researching and and getting back into the the nuts and bolts and history of of this story. So you know any author who with one. 22 page comic book can make me go down that kind of rabbit hole for a weekend good on you <laughs> yeah it's it's certainly not perfect there's certainly questions that i need answered and like i said the the fact that we get to the end of this and i have no idea where he's gone who he's with who's got him i think that was a visual storytelling problem but ultimately that's a problem with the last page of the book and there were yeah i read it two or three times and there was stuff in there visual cues that i missed so while i can complain about that page you know you had to point out yeah did you notice he's being recorded when during that snm session i'm like shit no okay so there's there's really interesting stuff going on here so yeah if if you're a fan of the fly certainly it helps if you've seen both of them <laughs> 
I am never going to recommend to you <laughs> that you watch The Fly 2. It is available for free on streaming Netflix. It will make your understanding of the book a little bit better. Um, but it won't make you any smarter. <laughs> God, it won't make you any smarter because you really need to be drinking while you're watching it. It's better than I uh, than I remember it. And And it's strange as a book that clearly doesn't rely but uses the events of the fly too which i really was not anticipating when i first heard about this because yeah the the first movie is just so perfect a superhero gone wrong story and we have such a recent history of just with alien you know neil blomkamp saying <laughs> we're we're just going to kind of ignore what happened with these <laughs> i really thought it was going to take place right after the fly somebody trying to latch onto that and get their own power it's still, it really worked for me. Yeah. You know, it's, is it worth spending an hour and 45 minutes with the fly too? Eh, maybe your time is more valuable than mine. <laughs> was it an hour and 45 minutes? Yeah, it was longer than the original. Oh my God. <laughs> the original was tight. It was just barely was. over was, an hour was, and a yeah, half. It was 95 minutes. So, hey. Which was actually about the length of uh, the 1958 movie. <laughs> well. <laughs> Roughly. There still wasn't enough money for me to go back and revisit. And revisit. <laughs> I've never seen any of the original movies. Maybe next weekend. Yeah, but... So, yeah, clearly that was our winner of the week because, yeah, it, it got me to watch The Fly 2. <laughs> and it got Amanda to really spend a lot of time falling into this. So, so Making it was... tenuous BDSM connections between 1915 literature and... 2015 comic book. <laughs> and if you make a tenuous BDSM connection, it just ruins the effect. I, 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 I'm probably downplaying and not giving myself enough credit. There, there's, there's something very important whenever you do BDSM play. I've come here to say one magic word to you. Cheeseburger. <laughs> magic word, safety word, whatever. What, the not cover your, you're not going to do the cover your balls like clip? <laughs> <laughs> no, because people have heard that one. Uh, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> It's just that was the last clip that I got from the fly that I hadn't used. I wanted to use it before the end of the show. Tantalizing and leaving me wanting in that BDSM kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> See, now don't you feel dirty? And, and Be hot? afraid. <laughs> Be very afraid. All right. How are we doing on time? Oh, how are we doing on time? It's uh oh, it's only about an hour and a half. All right. Well, you want to talk about a couple other books? Let's talk about a couple other books. Where do you want to start? Oh, let's start with Amazing Spider-Man. Speaking of, of things that have elements of other things. <laughs> All right. So, yes, Amazing Spider-Man 16.1. This is a part one of the spiral arc that uh, is sort of happening in parallel with the standard Spider-Man continuity written by Jerry Conway, uh, art by Carlor, uh, Carlo Barbieri. Me talk good. <laughs> Carlo Barbieri. What kind of parents would name their kid that? Carlo Barbieri. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Barbieri did. Um, all right, so we're in the aftermath of the Spider-Verse, even though this is sort of taking place in parallel with the regular Spider-Man continuity. Um, Spider-Man drops in on a police raid uh, led by Yuri Watanabe, who is uh, also the wraith on her angrier days, I guess. <laughs> uh, during uh, during this raid, uh, Yuri's buddy, Detective Wrangle, gets hit, goes into a coma, so he can't testify about his informant, which is how they got the search warrant for the raid. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so Tombstone winds up going free, and this pisses Yuri off, so she wraiths out. And uh, busts into tombstones to get some evidence. Wraiths out. <laughs> and uh, it starts to look suspiciously like she's about one bad day away from muttering, I am the spider, and looking <laughs> for her own goddamn clones. <laughs> so, so 
I generally enjoyed this issue. I enjoyed it, but there's a, there's a little voice in the back of my mind, and it's not really a bad thing. It's going, oh, it's Jerry Conway dropping Spider-Man into a police procedural. Huh. <laughs> Jerry Conway, who's been a supervising producer on Law & Order, Criminal Intent. <laughs> I see the voice in the back of my head says, I want you guys to go out there and protect your balls at any cost. You couldn't stay away from it, could you? I couldn't. You put it in my mind and I was stuck. Next, I will sing Let It Go. Don't you fucking do it. (laughs) But, uh, see, I'm I'm okay with that. And and here's here's the reason. I'm okay with it, too. Go ahead. Um, If you look at the last, basically, two years of Spider-Man stories, you've got You've got a whole year of it where basically no matter what the story was, it was being colored by it was Doc Ock who was in Spider-Man's body. The last few months, we've had Spider-Verse with these big multiversal stories and, oh, it's the end-all and be-all of the Spider-Totems and a story about Spider-Man versus some street-level criminals against a few of his old-school, you know, mobbed-up villains. No, it's, 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 it's... I liked the story. I just thought it was funny given yeah well <laughs> if that's what he's been doing you know write what you know kid i'm okay with that yeah and and there's a lot to like here you're right there's brushes with old school spidey villains um the opportunity to work with someone who clearly needs mentoring for fuck's sake uh Do you need <laughs> about something? using one's abilities uh responsibly yeah power <laughs> vis-a-vis responsibility maybe one should not fire an anti-tank weapon at a building don't, Maybe. Don't you fucking tell me what to do. I got plans <laughs> for later. But so so yes, there there's that. It there's some pretty decent Spider-Man banter lines. You know, one or two of them are an old joke. Yeah. You know, plans are like opinions and assholes basically. Yes. Although he's Spider-Man, he doesn't say assholes, but <laughs> but uh one thing I did find was Spider-Man's characterization was not all over the place, but it was a little erratic. It was. There were moments where he f- refers to himself as a physicist that felt very Doc Ocky. Yeah, but it's. I understand why Conway did that. It's a good way to get into the idea of quantum states, right? And you know, you, all, you know, things are the way they are based on how they're observed. Which, but, but Petey isn't generally that nerdy in his day-to-day exposition of his life. He's not, but as a as a story point, as an analogy point, it makes sense. And let's face it, he's head of Parker Industries now, so True. That's something so maybe that, he's more likely to do that. Yeah, is more likely to pop up than when he's webbing his camera up to take pictures of himself spinning all jammies, over the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for me, it was more. We've got you know, a scene where Spider Man's telling the Wraith she needs to play by the rules. And then immediately says he's the one who does stupid stuff and then walks right in with her, you know, to take on Tombstone's headquarters. Yeah. Um, And yeah, he does that thing about uh, the physicist and having questions about your own identity. And he sees Yuri basically saying she identifies herself differently than she does when she's the Wraith. And then that's right after she yeah blows up a vault in Midtown Manhattan and then he just sort of lets her wander off, even though she's apparently half schizo with a rocket launcher. Yeah, making the good choices there, Pete. Uh- <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not all over the place characterization. Everything made sense within the long term of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man's 
characterization. It's just certain thing. Yep. Uh, in certain times he's acted like this, so I'm going to have him act like this. Right. Um, not enough to put me off the book, but. No, and, it, and honestly, it wasn't really until we started to kind of dig into it a little bit. It was like, oh, kind of jarring. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about the art? Because I had some problems. I, I thought that the art was, um, I, I thought it was respectful of the fact that um, Ramos has been on the main book for a very long time. And it had that kind of manga equality to it. See, I, I found it more 90s. And Barberi gives good 90s. There's, he does. There's he does. detail lines all over the place. But, yeah. you know, Conway was doing the heyday of his stuff in the 90s, right? Uh, I think it was more like the 70s and 80s. Okay. But, but uh. And yeah, everybody's got that '90s comic book hair where stuff is just sort of spiking off. And <laughs> so not seeing a lot of pouches. So and it, well, it even though there aren't that many pouches, <laughs> uh, look, the wraith is pure '90s. She's, yes, you know, costume wise, it, it's all but a spawn knockoff. No, it's true. There's there's flowing things that I'm not sure what they're supposed to do. You get the impression in the panels she's using them to swing somehow. Yeah. Um, but unless they have some sort of like slap bracelet plus kind of technology. <laughs> I don't know how she's yeah, and it's, using them to, to swing. It's been a while. The the Wraith was uh, around in sort of the 660s issues of Spider-Man. Okay. So we're talking probably three or four years ago at this point. So it's it's been a while. Okay. But so, yeah. I mean, well, she had to hang it up and they, and they reference it in here when Parker's then girlfriend, Carly, who's a cop, uh, found her out and said, "You hang it up or I'll out you." Right. So yeah, it's but it's it's been a while, so I'm not as familiar. You know, the the issues are all in storage now. I'll find them <laughs> if I have to. But so uh, so yeah, visually based on that, you, there are worse choices than what Barbary's doing. But also in the '90s style, there are a lot of panels here where they're like poses. Oh yeah, I'm just looking at this. Uh... Yuri as Wraith on the front cover in some sort of odd pose that I'm not entirely sure I could pull off. Now, to be fair, I'm not shaped the same. However. <laughs> Nobody is. However, somehow her her chest is big enough that it completely obscures her entire torso and ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's... <laughs> Physically, how do you even do that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean... I would that implies tits on the back of your neck, and we're right back into fly territory. And she's she's in some sort of weird. If she wasn't supposedly running, it looks like she's speed skating, <laughs> <laughs> rollerblading. Perhaps. Or, yeah, I, that's nineties. Yeah, so it's it's an odd choice. But yeah, what I found mostly with the posing it makes everything and this has always been a problem with with art in the 90s and when you go with that style if everything's posing everything looks kind of static yes it looks like there's a lot of places where people are just standing there waiting for the camera so it, it, things don't look as fluid as as i'd expect in certain places like, like that pose right on the first or second page you know the big almost splash oh yeah yeah, I mean, it's a ton of detail, and you can see Spider-Man's costume folds, and but it's just sort of there. There's not a lot of fluidity to it. Yeah, and it also suggests a a lack of ability to control his motion in the air that Pete shouldn't have. Yeah. 
And my body goes this way while my lower body goes this way, but my leg goes this way. <laughs> <laughs> I can't control myself. Coming in for landing. <laughs> Mayday. <laughs> but it's also, there were a lot of sequences in here where it doesn't pass the old uh, gym shooter test of, can I follow this without having to read everything? Yeah. And specifically, we're just not shown things that that happen. We've got Spider-Man and Wraith talking about how Tombstone was hiding in the vault she blew up. We never fucking saw Tombstone. This is true. To be honest, we never saw the fucking vault <laughs> until she went into it. Also a good point. So it's that doesn't happen all over the place. There are one or two other sequences where I, I had to look closely, but it did track. Like when Spider-Man was trying to stop the other rocket from hitting something in Midtown, it was able to follow, but it was a little tricky to figure out where things were going and how he was catching up to it. But the information is there. You just have to sort of hunt for it. Right. But yeah, the whole, you know, I don't think we t see Tombstone at all when he goes in with Wraith to, to his headquarters. No. Yeah, and considering it's a major plot point that she almost fucking killed him, it'd be nice to see him there. Yeah, and I'm looking to see if there's any kind of explanation, like a flick of the wrist where like one of the Spidey trackers or something gets stuck on him, and I don't see anything like that. Yeah. Now, it, it could be as simple as the art came in and there had to be a rewrite, which is possible, but it's still, it, it doesn't match up right. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, in, in general, like I said, it's, it's pretty 90s-style art. I I don't think it's awesome. I think it's got some problems, but you know it's not 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 awful. But look, overall, I I got into it because at the very least, where the rubber hits the road, it was a case of Spider Man fighting New York crime, and it yes. doesn't feel like we've seen that very much. No, and it was nice to get back to that. Although, yeah, the more I look at each of these panels now, it's like when we talk about various story points. The more I look at these, I'm like, the more I'm seeing. Um, Shades of Liefeld's Hawk and Dove. <laughs> and it bothers me. That's damn near libel. Don't you say that about Barberry, for Christ's sake. I can't unsee it. It was wrong and you knew it. Just leave that alone. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, all right, hold on. Let me... Be afraid. Be very afraid. All right. Anything else on this? Nope. Or... Nope. All right. So, Batgirl? Oh, God. All right, now. In its favor, it's got a it's got an '80s homage cover that is is a a, tr uh, a tribute to Purple Rain. Yes, the uh, the variant covers for DC books over the last couple of weeks have been movie posters where they fit the characters into old movie posters. It's even got a riff on the Batgirl mobile of of a a prince type sy uh, symbol, but with a bat symbol laid upon it. Yes, no that. The variant covers have been generally fun, but let's get to the details here. It's Batgirl 40. I said, now, it goes downhill from the cover. <laughs> we get the details out. <laughs> Batgirl 40, written by Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher, art by Babs Tarr. Um, so... <laughs> All right, so basically, and, and we had mentioned this a while, there was a story going on where... Uh, Barbara had seen what appeared to be another version of Barbara Gordon yeah. on a computer screen 
spoilers from here on out. Uh, I hate having to be negative about a book on, on which we're already well known as not really liking or feeling as though we are the audience for. Yeah, look, I'll I'll caveat everything I say about this with the acknowledgement that as a 44-year-old white dude, this story is not written for me as the intended audience. No. I've stipulated it before. I'll do it again. Frankly, I made a point to read this and a few other DC books this week just because since Convergence is like around the corner, I, I but, all right, let me make sure I'm caught up on everything right. before it gets soft rebooted. But also, we haven't talked about a DC book in like three weeks. Okay. So I wanted to make a, this is just one. It's like, let me make sure I go through the DC books and see what jumps out. This one jumped out, not in a way that I would have preferred. <laughs> but anyway. Batgirl had seen the face of Barbara Gordon on a screen and there was big fan speculation, you know, oh, is there another Barbara version of Barbara? Is this Oracle? And it turns out that Barbara's missing algorithm that she's been looking for since Stuart and Tar took over has gained AI sentience. And AI Barbara's designed to fight crime, wants to take over Barbara's body and eliminate crime in Gotham all at the same time in one shot. Wait, didn't I fall asleep during this movie when it was Transcendence? Uh, it's possible. You'd have to beat me <laughs> unconscious to get me to see Transcendence. But, okay. Um, but yes, it, it turns out since everybody in Gotham is somehow related to somebody who once did some crime or could someday do some crime, it, AI Barbara thinks it's time to liquefy Gotham. So. Hmm. Batgirl has to stop this rampaging machine that thankfully has apparently never read any Isaac Asimov or so, seen any original series Star Trek. In order to save the city, it's necessary it to necessary destroy. to destroy the, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> do, do you want to start? Well, no, it's just, gosh, isn't there a Marvel movie coming out with, with an AI that wants to do the same thing to the planet in May? Uh, there is. I hadn't even thought of that because... Huh. Because... This movie riffing on modern stories was not the first of my concerns. Just, just gonna put that out there. Yeah, all right. I'm just gonna leave that right there. Okay. (laughs) All right. Look, this this book has been put together to appeal to a young tech savvy audience. Yes, it's safe to say that. You think? I, I I think that is a true statement. Okay. So for this to work for that audience, presumably they would have to believe that someone can create a self-aware AI on a MacBook Pro while hospitalized and presumably on (laughs) painkillers. I'm sorry. I am a software developer. I could barely get Hello World to work on a fucking MacBook Pro. (laughs) We further have to believe that the user interface for that MacBook-created AI would be green and matrixy. <laughs> the only way you see anything green on a Mac is if you spill fucking high C ecto cooler <laughs> on it. Wait, you have high C ecto cooler? Uh, I do not. You've been holding out on me. That's why there's nothing green on a MacBook fucking Pro. <laughs> oh, that we don't have a MacBook fucking Pro. It's. I, I've been trying to work on them at my day job recently. <laughs> They're infuriating fucking machines for people who understand computers. The worst, most, I don't want to say offensive, because it's not, this is certainly not the first story to do this. But the most disappointing thing is it assumes that no one in the reading, reading audience has ever read 
Isaac Asimov's liar from iRobot. This is important. School the audience, Rob. It's <laughs> that is the first story where it was printed in 1941. <laughs> and it is about a robot that has the ability to read minds. And with the ability to read minds, it is able to learn the desires of the people that it talks to. And in order to not violate the first law of robotics, which is a robot cannot harm or through an action, allow a human being to come to harm begins lying to people to make them happy. The problem is some of those lies cause injury to people. If they believe, Oh, I got that job and you show up and you're humiliated. So the, Climax of the story is master roboticist uh, Susan Calvin confronts the robot and says, you're, you tell lies in order to not harm people, but that harms people. And it sets up a paradox and causes the robot to <laughs> shut down, which is exactly the fucking conclusion to this book. Wow. It's also as if somehow the the writers of this particular story either didn't see or assumed that their audience didn't see the piece of shit Will Smith, iRobot. <laughs> see, I, I have never seen that piece of shit. I, I don't know if that sequence happens. I don't. Know. It may have happened. I was pretty drunk. But it, either way, the, <laughs> the story was originally printed 74 years ago. It was collected in iRobot, and that has been in continuous print, or almost continuous print, for 65 years. We are all about the old school science fiction and being respectful of that as a source on this show. And <laughs> and I don't want to I don't want to condemn it completely because it's not like this is the first book to lift the idea. There's at least 3 episodes of the original Star Trek that do the same goddamn thing. Yes. In I Mud, Kirk tells the robot that Mud's a liar. Mud says he's lying. Robot shuts down. In Return of the Archons, computers designed to destroy evil. Kirk tells it by destroying creativity or something like that. That makes the computer evil explode. Mm. In the Changeling, that's the one with uh, Nomad. That's the one, one of the few where it never leaves the Enterprise. Mm, okay. Uh, Nomad thinks it's infallible. Kirk convinces it that it made a mistake. And since Nomad is programmed to destroy the imperfect, it kills itself. But that was original. Even that the, that's original series. Right. Basically, three, <laughs> three in a row that rip off, not rip off, are inspired by lie. I don't want to throw around ugly words. It's not like that. Liar is a classic for a reason. But so we we've got a a concept that was created by one of the granddaddies of all science fiction, particularly robotic science fiction, Isaac Asimov, that has become a well known trope that has been used in such places as the original Star Trek series. Yes. That is being used somewhat carelessly as a plot point in a story that seems designed ultimately as a way to put to bed grim, dark, gritty Barbara. Apparently. Uh, yeah. No kids. If you ever had any hope at all that this was going to shift tona tonally, Back to the stories we had prior to Stuart and company com coming on. Oh, no, no, no. We're deleting that, Barbara. But but the other problem with this is all of those stories were before anybody had actually seen a real fucking computer. So 
you're pitching this to the young and tech savvy who have blisteringly fast computers in their pockets. You know, you're having Batgirl defeat the AI, giving it a logic error. You know, it's having actually coded. The only way you get something like that is to have some kind of method that calls itself. And it's like these guys don't know what a stack overflow error is that stops that condition. <laughs> it's also we're supposed to believe Barbara is a good enough developer to write an AI, but she's either using go-to statements for infinite loops or she doesn't know what a fucking try-catch is. I don't know what a try-catch is and I like go-to statements. Therefore, I am Barbara Garden. And that's and why I, I become God. And that's Wait. why you don't have the password to my computer, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Just get dinged on that all the time. Stop using go-to statements. It worked, didn't it? <laughs> but it's uh, look. The book's not for me. I, I get it's not for me. Is this this one's on your polls, right? Yes, it's on my polls. Okay, because uh, I, I can't quite bring myself to drop it yet. So I keep reading it and hoping. And again, this story for me, lazy writing around that issue with the AI aside really felt like the writers, the creative team were going out of their way to say, yep, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're doing away with all possible hope and traces of that particular Barbara Gordon. We're, we are heading off into the light. This is how it's going to be from now on. And it looks like they're also putting into place the seeds for a new Oracle type by bringing Frankie in to be their computer person, which is, Fine. I don't have a problem with the idea of a lighter Batgirl. And look, the book is clearly not for me. And were it not for the use of what has become a trope based on a classic Isaac Asimov story, I would have gone through it and said, yeah, you know, this is still not for me. Let me move on to whatever the next DC book yeah. you know, in the pile was. It was just that, oh, my God, we're going to do... We're going to do iRobot. We're going to do Liar. Really? Well, and also for me, though, again, the, the larger thing that struck me was you're setting up an AI that wants to destroy the city. This is not all that dissimilar. <laughs> you know, based on a program that you created that's supposed to find crime and stop it so that you don't necessarily have to go do it all yourself all the time. This is not all that dissimilar to what they're hinting at is the plot for Age of Ultron. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, that had not occurred to me at all. But now that you mention it, yeah, that's... Yeah, complete with, like, you know, drones that are being uh, programmed and run by the AI. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it, you absolutely have a point, you know, but I, I, I chose to be hooked in old school. Yeah, and that's okay. But it's... <laughs> Man, if if you're gonna if you're gonna do an an Asimov story, you goddamn well better do it right. And it's I just don't think anybody. Again, those stories were fine when computers were these magical things that only extremely highly trained people could even touch. And the idea that you might actually not not only own a computer but even see one was it just those stories just don't hold up anymore. Yeah. So it's, yeah, they went old school and old school in a way. Yeah, it's, I'm not young, but I'm tech savvy. And okay, even if I buy the AI, now you're just, you're stacking shit up that and stacking it too high for me to buy into. Yeah, it's, it's, it's written by 
someone who seems to have no sense for how programming works. Yeah. But again, look, I'm not the core audience. If the core audience is, say, young teenagers who all they know about computers is their phones, that's fine. The Liar became a classic for a reason. Yeah. There are certainly shittier stories that you could reference. And, you know, maybe kids will buy into it. But it's, it, yeah, just that use of that story point combined with everything else. The the book is just not for me. And it's it, even taking out all the other stuff that isn't for me. It's no, that's that's just I, I can't party that way. So we start our podcast with an exploration of the history of a classic story and how it has influenced other stories, some wildly successful, some less so, but culminating in the moment with what appears to be an excellent take that is respectful of the history of that classic story. And we end with a comic book that also has elements from a classic science fiction story, but is not successful because it was not treated with the same level of respect for the source material. So you're saying this entire episode is almost thematic. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep, did that on purpose. You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. I've got nothing better to do. It's like we were organized or some shit. I know. <laughs> Not sitting just up here drinking beers and talking. Talking. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, I'm out of beer. So anything else on bat? It's Look, I, I hate to condemn the thing because it's not for me. It just, it isn't. But yeah, I think, I, I think I'm done with the book it, and fine. And that's the, okay. The target audience loves it. Great. There are people who aren't me. I want more people in comics, but ooh, the, the, this is a hell of a way for me to, to reach the point of it's not for me. Yeah. And, and that's okay though. It, it It's okay to decide something's not for you and to move on. Cause there are other, there's other literature out there. There's, there's other comic books out there. There's other stories to read. Yes. And that's why we love the medium. That's right. <laughs> so we should have done Batgirl first. I, I hate to end on a bummer. But there'll be other stories to read for next week. And, and... there always are. <laughs> Wednesday always comes. Exactly. So, all right. I'm smiling again. God damn it. You sure are. <laughs> that's not a look of pain or grimacing or is that gas? Like, <laughs> Let's start it. <laughs> Started. All right, I'm on a beer. So, how are we doing on time? Oh, it's about two hours. So, why don't uh, we put this to bed? All right. So, don't know how you found this episode, but you can always find us at our home website, which is crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. Uh, you can email us at crisisoninfinitemidlives at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. You can find a link to our Facebook page and send us messages via Facebook. Uh, that link is on our homepage. We're on Tumblr. Crisis on Infinite Midlives We are on Twitter. I don't know the fucking Twitter feed. Don't look at me like that. I'm never going to know it. <laughs> at Infinite Midlife. At Infinite Midlife on Twitter. Uh, we are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. We are on iTunes. If you happen to find the find us there, do us a favor, shoot us a review, uh, give us a rating. Helps other people find the show. And frankly, we just like hearing from listeners. We do. It's fun to be up in this room yammering into a microphone but it's nice to hear from the people it's true we totally despite all um indications to the contrary 
uh, like to see the little notica- notification thing on our phones that tells us that somebody has, has emailed us. <laughs> Computers are dumb. They only know what you tell them. <laughs> uh, did I leave anything out? Oh, yeah, you can find us on uh, TuneIn. Radio. TuneIn Radio. Um, yeah, so we're, we're out there. <laughs> <laughs> we are out there. We are out of beer, so that is it. This has been episode 60 of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife show. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. Thank you for listening, and derp. I mean, write down the date. This is the only time it's going to sound like we knew what the fuck we were doing. <laughs>